Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached this message on June 4th, 2017, which happened to be a day on the church calendar known as Pentecost Sunday, which is a day that the church traditionally focuses on the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. I didn't really even intend to observe Pentecost Sunday. I'm not much for following the church calendar, to be honest. But I ended up preaching a, what I think is a pretty strong message on the Holy Spirit um, as I challenged our church to think about who we are as members of the church. We are a holy priesthood, Peter tells us, and we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. And I, I dive into the meaning of, of those spiritual sacrifices, especially as they relate to bearing witness to our faith. Um, to a lost and dying world. So, I hope you enjoy this message. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-12, through 12, which I'm going to read right now. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is our third week looking at mostly the same scripture in Peter's first epistle. This week I'm turning our attention mostly to the work of the Holy Spirit as we as we recognize and appreciate the role of the Spirit in the life of our church and in our lives as individuals. But this is a, a difficult message that I'm going to bring. I pray that we could all hear not mostly my weak and fallible words, but we can hear your eternal and infallible words speaking through me. I am an unworthy vessel for sure, but I thank you for this privilege. Let your spirit work through me and work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Roger Moore was the James Bond of my childhood, and so I love him. 
And after reading a reminiscence on Facebook from an Englishman named Mark Hayes last week in the wake of Moore's death, I love him even more. When Hayes was seven years old, he and his grandfather saw Roger Moore at an airport in Nice, France. And the grandson, who was seven, recognized him. And he told his granddad, look, it's James Bond. And his granddad didn't know who James Bond was, much less Roger Moore. But he took his grandson over to meet him. And he said, my grandson says that you're James Bond. Can we get an autograph? And so Roger Moore graciously signed the boy's uh, airline ticket. Only when the boy returned to his seat, he noticed it was signed Roger Moore. And he had no idea who that was. And he explained to his grandfather that he signed the wrong name. So his grandfather went back over to Roger Moore with his grandson and explained why his grandson was disappointed. At which point, Moore took the boy aside and leaned down and in, 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 a, in, a, in a soft tone of voice said to him, I have to sign my name, Roger Moore, because otherwise Blofeld might know that I was here. <laughs> Blofeld, of course, is a famous Bond villain. Then Moore asked the child not to tell anyone that he'd just seen James Bond, and he thanked him for keeping that secret. Isn't that great? The story gets better. 23 years later, a grown-up Mark Hayes, who is now uh, working in film, and he's helping to film a UNICEF commercial that Roger Moore is involved in, because Moore was the celebrity uh, ambassador for UNICEF. And he got a chance to meet his childhood hero again, and he told him the story about the airport. And Roger Moore said he had no memory of that, but he's glad that, his, that he was able to meet James Bond. Then, after the filming was over, and Roger Moore was about to leave the studio, he turned around and found Mark Hayes. He looked around, and he said in a soft voice, of course I remember meeting you in Nice, but I didn't say anything there because those cameramen, any number of them could be working for Blofeld. (laughs) I can hardly, I can hardly share that story without tearing up. Um, I am sentimental about my childhood heroes, which means when uh, either William Shatner or uh, Henry Winkler die, I'm going to be a mess. (laughs) Anyway, I share this story with you this morning because like James Bond, you and I, indeed all of us members of Hampton United Methodist Church, we have a secret identity. And like James Bond, we have access to a great deal of power. You remember the best part of those Bond movies. The best part was when Bond went into the laboratory with Q. Remember Q? And he always had these amazing, uh, clever, uh, uh, powerful gadgets that he showed to Bond, that Bond would then use in order to defeat his enemy, in order to accomplish his mission. We have the Holy Spirit 
which means we have all the power we need at Hampton Methodist to accomplish our mission. One depressing difference is that unlike James Bond, we're not supposed to have a secret identity. We're we're supposed to want the Blofelds of the world to know who we are and who we stand for, who we represent, for whom we are ambassadors. And unlike James Bond, depressingly, the power to which we have access is so often unused in our mission, or at least it seems that way. What's, What's the problem? What's my problem? What's our problem as a church? Brothers and sisters, I have an urgent message to share with you about our church and about our church's mission. I have an urgent message to share with you about the reason that God planted Hampton Methodist right here 109 years ago. I said last week in anticipation of today's sermon that, that we all know we can do better as a church. We, we, we all know that we ought to do better as a church. We all know, I hope, that each one of us one day will stand before God in judgment and have to give an account, to give an account in part for for how faithful we were or weren't with the resources that God gave us when he gave us this church and he continues to give us this church. We will have to give an account for the souls of the people that God sent to us. And the souls of the people to whom God sent us. I've shared this before, but it bears repeating. In Acts 20, when Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at the church at Ephesus. This was a church that he started. It was a church that he ministered at for over three years. It was a church that was near and dear to him. And he said goodbye to them. And he gave this speech where he he reviewed his ministry there. And he talked about the boldness with which he proclaimed the gospel to them. And he said, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Do do you know what he's saying here? He's saying that if he failed to proclaim the gospel message to someone that God put in his path while he was there in Ephesus, And that person never otherwise heard the good news of Jesus Christ, was never able to hear and respond to it. And that person died and as a result went to hell. Then that person's blood, Paul believed, would be on his hands. Why? Because the Holy Spirit put that person in Paul's life to share the gospel with him or her. That might have been that person's only chance to repent and turn to Jesus and be saved. Paul understood, as we so often fail to understand, that what we do here, what we do as ministers of the gospel at Hampton Methodist, which is not just me, it's all of us. I'll talk about that later. What we do here as ministers of the gospel has eternal consequences. But I am not like Paul, unfortunately. I cannot honestly say I'm innocent of the blood of all. I wish I could. 
Believe me, I, I recognize that this is a sin for which I have repented and the Holy Spirit is changing me. Praise God. But some of you might have noticed over the past couple of years that every time we have a big community outreach event of some kind, including Easter egg hunts, including trunk or treats, including Christmas musicals, including preschool commencement services, I am going to use that event as an opportunity to share the gospel because I have a fairly captive audience who needs to hear it. You think I don't know, for example, that that preschool parents, some of whom will never darken the door of this or any other church, don't want to listen to me preach to them for 10 minutes. Believe me, I know that. But they're the ones who put their kids in a Christian preschool, so they shouldn't be surprised. And if they show up for an Easter egg hunt, which is great, we do a great job with that. They should not be surprised that a church is going to explain to them the true meaning of Easter, which really has nothing to do with Easter eggs. I love these community events that we put on. We do them as good or better than anyone else in our community. But I do not love them simply because they give our church a good reputation. Because people say, oh... That Hampton Methodist, they do such a nice job with families in this community. I love them because they give us a platform for sharing the gospel. And if they don't, we shouldn't do them. But as long as they do, I support them. And I think they're an important part of our ministry. Now, I I think I'm a pretty good preacher. But even if I were as good as Andy Stanley or Billy Graham, I know that a lot of people don't want to listen to me preach the gospel. I don't care anymore. (laughs) I am not in this to win anyone's respect or approval, except I want to win the approval of my Lord Jesus. His opinion is the only one that ultimately matters. Gone are those days when yours truly would show up at one of these community events, just to make, a, make an appearance, just to glad hand with people, just to make a positive impression on visitors. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm friendly. I can smile and shake hands with the best of them, and I do. But as long as God continues to give me this life and this breath, which he can take away tomorrow or he could take away a minute from now, I'm going to continue to use this gift of life to boldly Proclaim the full counsel of God because that's the mission that I have been given. For the sake of the souls that God has put in my path, I'm going to do that. The Bible tells us that the gospel itself is power. It has power through the Holy Spirit. We can be confident when we proclaim it that the Holy Spirit is working through it to change lives. And I can guess what some of you might be thinking right now. But it's, it's not working, Pastor Brent. Our church isn't growing. Attendance today is almost exactly the same as it was four years ago when you got here. We've lost some people to death. I've run off some people, unfortunately. Other people have left to move, moved away. We've gotten lots of other people, but 
we still have about 115 on a typical Sunday who worship with us on Sunday morning. It, it seems like we're kind of stuck in a rut. And on this Pentecost Sunday especially, as we think about the power of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit did in that church in Jerusalem and at Pentecost and, and in those early chapters of the book of Acts and how powerful the Spirit worked through the Apostle Paul as he planted churches all around the, the Mediterranean. When we think about that kind of power and we think about that experience with our own experience here at Hampton, well, maybe we're right to ask, what's wrong with us? Why, why isn't this working? And my first response to that question is, it's not up to me or you or anyone else to make this work. Peter understands that in today's scripture, what he's describing here, when he talks about how we believers are are living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house, he understands that that we, the members of this church, are the means through which the Holy Spirit does the work. Not us. In in, in Exodus, God gave Moses instructions for building the temple, or I should say the tabernacle, which was sort of the portable temple that the people of Israel could carry around as they wandered in the wilderness. But you may recall that God's presence and power was demonstrated in that tabernacle, in a, in a powerful way. At nighttime, there was a pillar of fire. During the day, it was like a, a cloud of smoke. It was unmistakable that God's presence and power were with the people. And then later, centuries later, Solomon built a, a permanent tabernacle or temple, and he based it on the instructions in Exodus about building the tabernacle. And there was a place in the temple known as the Holy of Holies where God's presence was was especially there in a powerful way. In fact, nobody could enter into that place except the high priest and only once a year. It was dangerous to be that close to the power and presence of God. And you may remember what happened when Jesus was crucified. There was a giant curtain that was very thick that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple and when jesus was crucified that curtain was miraculously torn which symbolized what jesus christ accomplished through his death on the cross that our sins were forgiven that his righteousness was imputed to us which which meant that we now god's people We're able to have this power and this presence of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives, especially in in our church life as we gather to worship God on Sunday. When we gather here as a church at Hampton Methodist, we believe that something supernatural happens, or at least we ought to believe that. We believe that the Holy Spirit will meet us here. We believe that the Holy Spirit will change people's lives who gather here. We are not promised, by the way, that this will happen out in the fellowship hall or in the hallways or in the classroom or in the nursery or anywhere else, in the parking lot. It's going to happen right here in this sanctuary as God's people gather for worship. I told the young people um, during confirmation class, they're going to be confirmed next Sunday. I told them that they are making a promise to God and to this church 
that worshiping God on Sunday in this sanctuary is going to be their top priority. And today's scripture makes clear what other scripture also tells us. There is no category of Christian in the New Testament who deliberately skips the worship of God in church on Sunday or, or routinely does something other than gather with brothers and sisters for worship on Sunday. According to Scripture, there's no such thing as a non-church-going, non-worship-attending Christian. It's kind of like those arguments about whether or not you can be saved if you're not baptized. Well, I don't know the answer to that question because the New Testament doesn't give us an example of any Christian who hasn't been baptized. We, you know, it's like attending church and worshiping. It's, It's the same thing. We are not being faithful to Christ. Indeed, we are sinning when we routinely choose to be somewhere other than in this sanctuary on Sunday morning. We entered into a covenant with God. We made a promise to God when we joined this church that we would be here. Were we lying to God? Will our young people be lying to God next Sunday when they get confirmed? God forbid it. But they need to see the example of us adults. They need to, they need to see how important worship is to us. We, we are showing them with our feet, whether we are here on Sunday or not, we are showing them how important it is to worship God. And you might say, yes, but worship is boring. <laughs> well, you might say, I don't like the music, or I, you preach too long, your sermons are dull. Uh, you know, I don't like the people who are sitting around me. They hurt my feelings last week. I, something like that. To which I need to ask, yes, but do you like Jesus? Because church is not about you and your likes and your preferences. It's not even mostly about whether or not you're fed on Sunday morning. It's mostly about what you bring to the table. It's it's about worshiping and adoring and glorifying God, our Father, and His Son, Jesus, through the power of the Spirit. When we complain that we're not getting anything out of worship, I need to ask, well, what are you putting into it? Because we are bringing that same old boring American middle class consumerist mentality to church. And that needs to stop. Today's scripture makes it clear that we are not worship consumers. We are worship producers. Every single one of us is responsible for making worship meaningful. Because Peter tells us that every single one of us is a priest in this temple that the Spirit is building with the living stones of our lives. What does Peter say? We are a holy priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. We are all priests. You're a priest every bit as much as I'm a priest. The difference is I would rightly be fired from my job if I, if I didn't show up for worship because it's my responsibility. But guess what, brothers and sisters? It's your responsibility too. It's not just me saying this. This is God's word. And, and you can go back and look for yourself and see if I'm misinterpreting it. I promise you I'm not. As priests, 
Peter tells us in verse 5 that we are responsible for offering spiritual sacrifices. The author of Hebrews describes one of these sacrifices as praise and worship. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Paul tells us another sacrifice that we offer. In Philippians, when he describes the financial gift that the church at Philippi has given to him while he was in prison, he calls it a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In the last couple of weeks, I've already talked to you about another sacrifice that we priests in this temple offer. Sacrifices of prayer and Bible reading and Bible study. Peter says in verse 3 that we should, we should long for pure spiritual milk of God's word. Spending time with God in prayer. The idea of, of living without those things at the center of our lives ought to be as unthinkable to us as an infant living, out, living without the, the milk of its mother. Peter tells us that we offer the sacrifice of our witness. In verse 9, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his glorious light. This means using words to witness. Are we proclaiming his excellencies to people whom God has put in our lives, to our friends, our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers? But witnessing isn't only about words. Notice verse 12. We are to conduct our lives in such a way that non-Christians may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, the day of Christ's return, when we will all be resurrected and face final judgment. So, getting back to the original question, what's wrong with our church? To answer that question, each one of us has to ask whether or to what extent our church looks like the church that the Apostle Peter describes in today's scripture. Are our lives characterized by a deep longing for God and his word? Are we earnestly praying for this church, praying for one another, praying for our church's ministries? Do we consider worshiping alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ on Sunday morning as an urgent need? Our responsibility, our highest priority? Are we being as generous with the money that God has given us as we know God wants us to be? Are we witnessing through our words and actions? Does our our heart break over the thought that God has put people in our lives who do not yet know his son Jesus and his saving love and grace? And unless we share this good news with them, they may be lost forever. That's a possibility, and that ought to frighten us. If the answer to any of these questions is no, then I would submit that that is what's wrong with our church. Because notice something else that Peter says. He begins today's scripture by saying, As you come to him. 
As you come to him, the Holy Spirit will will build these living stones up into this temple, which will be able to accomplish all these great things as we come to him. In other words, these things that, that we want for our church won't just happen automatically. They'll happen as we come to him, as we come to to God's word, as we come to him in God's word, as we come to him in prayer, as we come to him the way an infant comes to its mother for nourishment. Unless or until we decide to come to him like that, it's very possible that God will continue to withhold blessings for this church that we can't even imagine. I want us to imagine those blessings. I want us to think about what we need to do to realize them. The Holy Spirit could be waiting to bless us in a powerful and profound way. And we have the map in front of us. We know what we're supposed to do. Holy Spirit, come into this church. Come into our hearts in a powerful way and give us the power just to do what we need to do. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider worshiping with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We are on West Main Street in downtown Hampton. We have two worship services. We have a nine o'clock acoustic contemporary service, and we have an 11 o'clock traditional service. Feel free to join us. I hope I'll see you there.